Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. This month, we're doing an episode which was inspired by my visit to a tourist site in the old gold mining town of Wandiligong, about four hours north of Melbourne. What I saw there inspired us to put together a show looking at whether Chinese Communist Party is trying to change history beyond its own borders, and if so, how. To discuss this, we're delighted to have Karim Schamberger, the Vice President of the Young Historical Society. Louise Edwards, Emeritus Professor at the University of New South Wales, and in the interest of full disclosure, she was my boss for a little while, and Paul McGregor, who is formerly a curator at the Chinese Museum of Melbourne. So I wanted to start with my experience. When I was in Wandilagong, I went to see this bridge remembering the Chinese gold miners who were there from the in the 1860s and 1870s. It was this really beautiful bridge, red in colour, with Chinese pagoda-style roofs flanked by gum trees. But it was called Oriental Crossing, which already made me squirm. And then I read the information panels, and these used contemporaneous texts from the 19th century, and they described the Chinese miners as chinks and chows to be ridiculed and baited. One of the panels said they spoke in senseless gibberish and were apart from the rest of the human race. You know, I couldn't believe how and why such racist language was being used on a monument. And I posted this sort of short, angry thread on Twitter. And Paul, you replied and you offered one explanation of how this has happened, focusing on the role of the Australia-China Friendship Society in that project. I mean, can you give us a bit of background to explain who that body is and why they might benefit from such a commemoration? Uh, well, the Australia-China Friendship Society has been around in Australia at least since the 1970s or 1960s. I'm not sure how far back goes. It used to be a very large organisation. It was one of the only groups that enabled you to travel to China during the Cultural Revolution on organised trips, so they were very popular for that reason. But you think about its name, Australia-China Friendship Society, it's, it's for people who actually support modern China under the Communist Party and they're thrilled by what's been happening there. Quite early, on, at least in the 80s, started to take an interest in representing the... Chinese-Australian story as part of their bilateral engagement between China and Australia. So that from, from time to time, they've funded projects that celebrate or commemorate the bad things about the Chinese-Australian story. They funded a major uh, art project in 1988, which was a centennial scroll commemorating the history of Chinese from the very early days through to now, called The Harvest of Endurance, which is now in the National Museum collection. But they also um, started funding various commemorative projects in local areas. And the one that you noticed, the one at um, Wandilagon, on the plaque that honours who was involved in sponsoring it, they have pride of place. Look, it's, t it's typical of people who are concerned about Chinese history in Australia who are a white background. To, if they're interested in Chinese people, Chinese culture, they are ashamed of the racism that was carried out against Chinese people in Australia, uh, in the Gold Rush and, and later. And so they were quite keen, I, I would say, to promote the racism that you saw on those plaques so that people wouldn't forget 
how racist that was. But as you pointed out in, in your commentary, it actually turns the Chinese people into really strange others that you don't have any respect for as a reader and you feel quite unconnected with them. And especially if you are of Chinese-Australian background, you feel like you know your ancestors are not really treated honourably in a depiction like that. But the Australian-China French Society is also quite strongly supportive of the government of China, the Communist Party. So what this taps into, this, this focus on the racism of the past, taps into the century of humiliation uh, trope that is very much a part of Chinese government's view of itself in the world, its view of China in the world. The Chinese Communist Party is mirroring the humiliation of China uh, in the face of the Western powers and Japan through that period of humiliation, as they call it, by saying that a similar humiliation occurred towards Chinese people in the diaspora, particularly in the white settler nations of America, Canada and Australia and New Zealand. So it's quite a good conflation for the Australia-China Friendship Society to be funding a memorial that focuses on reminding everybody of how badly Chinese people were treated at this place in Montelegon. Karen, to bring you in, I mean, how is this use of racist language on a monument way out in regional Victoria um, of any use to China's Communist Party in an overall sense. And and, and is what Louisa saw out there, is it a one-off? I mean, from what Paul was saying, that there's quite a few examples of, of, of things like this. It is. I guess my context is that I have been doing research on the Lambing Flat riots um, for my PhD. So between November 1860 and July 1867, there were a series of anti-Chinese riots on the Lambing Flat goldfields, um, which is now called Young, and this is about two hours uh, west of Canberra. So the way that those riots have been remembered is um, that they were turned into a national foundation myth, that they were the birth of white Australia, um, in the lead up to Federation. And shortly after that, um, we see that the riots begin to be exaggerated in people's memories as being massacres. Um, and so people are, I guess the white Australians are really interested in the violence and commemorating the fact that they defeated Chinese people to, to keep this land that they had stolen from Aboriginal people. But after World War II, people around Young started to feel ashamed about the riots. And by the time we get to the 1970s, the introduction of the bilateral relations with the PRC in 1972 and the introduction of multicultural policies in the 70s um, means that people are much more interested in multiculturalism and they are seeking opportunities for local businesses to trade with um, businesses in China. They're looking at government-to-government -government relationships between the local government and governments in the PRC. And so they've become outward-looking, but they've got this really difficult past. And so they try to commemorate it. And they, they do first start commemorating it through the Chinese tribute gardens. But in, in more recent years, in about 2014, they actually had um, a Lambing Flat Chinese festival where they um, recreated the riots. So they had reenactors, a local reenactment group, and they used a replica of... Um, a banner which was used in the original riots. It's now in the local museum. So the um, the banner actually has the words roll up, no Chinese on it. 
So the reenactment group used that banner to reenact the scene of the riots where they were attacking Chinese people. And they utilised um, Chinese people who had come from Canberra and from Sydney to perform at the Lambing Flat Chinese Festival. So these were people who had performed as martial artists or um, in the musical um, performances. Um, and so they were reused in, in this racist sort of reenactment. Um, so the the actual memory of that racism is is really important to, I guess, towns' identities, but they don't know how to deal with it because what happens is you have a conflation of white nationalists who value that anti-Chinese violence and see it as something that they want to do today and are very clear about it being a precedent for what we should be doing to the PRC, so it's about war. But then you also have the white apologists or people with multiculturalist sympathies who want to remember the riots and they, they mean well, but what they mistakenly do is they think that recreating the riots or using racist language is a way to remember what happened in order that the past is not repeated. So... In terms of memories, I mean, on, on top of that, it seems you have another layer, which is sort of the party's memory of the Lambing Flat riots. I mean, how does the party portray the Lambing Flat riots? Have there been similar interventions to the one Louisa saw? The way that, I guess, both groups of white Australians have commemorated the Lambing Flat riots fits really well with the century of humiliation, which sees Chinese people as victims both in the diaspora and in, in the PRC itself. And what has happened at a, at a local level is um, that business people have created links across nations. So um, in 2009, there was a film crew from the PRC um, who connected up with Australians in the Young and Hardin Murrumburra area. They visited Karawong, where some of the Chinese had fled to. And they also visited the Murrumburra Chinese Cemetery. And this is the time when you first get the description of the owner of Karawong, who actually gave 1,276 Chinese people um, sanctuary during the riots, during the 30th of June 1861 riot. He gets described by this film crew as being like um, Oscar Schindler and his actions to the, towards the Jews in World War II. So that there becomes this exaggeration of the violence and the exaggeration of how heroic this white person is, which continues to deny historical Chinese agency and the kind of voices that actually were around at that time. And then sort of more recently um, in 2020 and 2021, there's also a local business who is organising a collaboration between artists from Shanghai and Sydney in the production of a musical, which was first called 1861, The Tragedy in Gold, but now it's called Gold the Musical. And James Roberts is again described as being Australia's Schindler's List. Um, and he gives sanctuary to over 1,500 Chinese miners. So, so things get more exaggerated. And the, the story of the musical is a love story between a Chinese woman and, a, and an Australian man. And it's quite clear that the Australian man is white. This is historically inaccurate because there were no Chinese women on the Lambing Flat goldfields during the riots. There were only two Chinese women in the whole of New South Wales in the 1861 census. 
And so the project itself gets described as being a great link for improved relations between both countries. And I am quoting from the flyer. It's an opportunity for businesses and products to be recognised with a huge positive influence in the world's biggest populated marketplace. It's so interesting, this this whole idea of myth-making and modern myth-making. And it just reminded me, Louise, a few years ago, we were at a conference where you gave a paper, I remember, about a couple of recent migrants from China who were playing a really active role in reshaping Chinese-Australian history of the goldfields. And one of their aims seemed to be that kind of really active myth-making, but in order to, to get an apology for Australia's racist policies. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about that particular piece of research that you did? Yeah, that paper eventually came out in a journal called Journal of Chinese Overseas. And the incident that you're talking about was uh, a father and son uh, team, uh, Mr Zhang and a group of others from Bendigo who were reenacting the walk from Robe in South Australia to the Victorian goldfields. So the 1850s, six, there was a poll tax that meant that if you wanted, uh, uh, on Chinese, that if you wanted to dig in the Australian and the Victorian goldfields, you would have to pay this tax if you were Chinese. And so to avoid the tax, you would land in South Australia and walk overland to get to the goldfields. And that was a way to evade tax. So this father and son team in 2018, I think it was, decided to reenact this walk and in the process relive the suffering and the hardships that these uh, thousands of miners and their you know and their own family members had undergone during this uh, you know the 1850s real walk their goal was to prompt an apology from the Victorian government for these racist policies but one of the problems with this particular um, seeking of apology was that it was wrapped up in a sense that the apology was going to be made to people who really had no connection to those original gold miners. They weren't the descendants of the gold miners. They were people who were recent migrants from China and who were encouraging and facilitating the uh, People's Republic of China representatives, ambassadors and consul generals and these kind of people to receive the apology on behalf of the Chinese people. And so this kind of nurturing of a sense of injustice that Karen was talking about, but the nurturing of a sense of injustice based around the Chinese that then is something that the People's Republic of China is responsible for redressing creates real problems, I think. And it's a huge opportunity for the People's Republic of China to establish itself as like the defender of Chinese interests internationally And it's also a huge opportunity for them to create uh, a sense of unity and cohesion among a very diverse group of people like Chinese overseas are like a huge, they have different languages, different cultural practices. They come from different, all sorts of different parts of the world, you know, Southeast Asia, the Pacific is, you know, China is not the only place that Chinese people hail from. And so this idea that, you can by creating, reminding people of their unity as victims of racism enables them to be more mobilised by the People's Republic of China. So the People's Republic of China and its uh, official representatives becomes your defender. It becomes the one that will stand up 
up for you. And that's actually, it's a mischievous use of history. Um, and, and, and it's harnessing the indignation that everyday people who, who are ethnically Chinese in Australia, you know, they experience racism and it's politically mischievous to be harnessing that sense of indignation for a goal that is not anti-racist, that is basically a goal that is to advance a, uh, an international agenda, advancing the solidity of the People's Republic of China. I'd just like to add to what Louise just said in terms of the the purpose of these apologies is to create the idea that Chinese are victims and that they need a strong China to defend them overseas. A further aspect of that is that they don't, in these historical commemorations, they don't talk about, as Louise, you pointed out in your article, they don't talk about Chinese in Australia historically taking political action themselves to address these grievances that they experienced 150 years ago or whatever. And this focus on the 1855 poll tax completely ignores the poll taxes that happened in the 1880s and the 1890s, completely ignores the white Australia policy of the federal government. Those things are not featured, nor are all the Chinese community organisations and activists over the period of 100 years of the white Australia policy and its colonial precedents who were very active politically and organised themselves and got their own goals achieved. And part of the reason I think that the CCP is keen to promote this lack of political power idea is that it means the Chinese overseas do not organise themselves politically. And the Communist Party knows that there has been a long history from the 1890s at least onwards where overseas Chinese have had a very important role to play in the transformation of China. Sun Yat-sen got a lot of his funding from overseas Chinese. Kang Yawei, Liang Chichao toured America, Canada, Singapore, Australia, getting support. A very large cohort of the early founders of the Communist Party got their training in Japan, in Russia, in France, in Britain, learning about political theories that weren't practised in China and bringing those back. So I, I think the Chinese government is very aware that there are so many students and so many emigres from China overseas and they don't want them to get ideas about what they should be doing in China. So they keep on trying to create this idea that the only thing that's important for you politically is to let the government of China keep you under their wing. I was just going to say there's some really great examples of Chinese activism in opposition to these uh, racist laws. Like in 1859, 4,000 miners in Bendigo denounced the licence tax, which all Chinese had to pay, just Chinese people, if they wanted to dig on the goldfields. They refused to pay. They were joined by miners in Castlemaine, where 3,000 refused to pay. In Beechworth, even more, you know, a few more refused to pay. And and by 1860, there were 4,000 Chinese who'd been fined for non-payment and 2,000 had been jailed. Now, this is all outlined in this history that Liam Ward's done. And it's quite remarkable. You know, there's a massive history, as uh, Paul said, of Chinese people mobilising to resist the kind of racism and repression that they're facing. But this is not a history that either the Australian government or the Chinese government wants to promote. They want to instead create this idea of the victim, you know, someone who you can call a Ching Chong Chinaman to and they won't respond. Well, they will respond. They do respond. And they have in the past. There's a long history of Chinese resistance to racism. 
So, you know, we have to ask ourselves in whose interests it is to have a Chinese victim, a Chinese person as a natural victim. It's really not in the interests of Chinese people anywhere, but this is a really strong narrative both produced in Australia and in China. So, I mean, Karen, you're Chinese-Australian. How much discussion is there amongst the Chinese-Australian community about this? Because, you know, from what all three of you are saying, it really sounds like, you know, Chinese-Australians are almost being sidelined or cut out of their own history. Um, There are some people who are recent migrants who are very aware of the pressures of the PRC government and the impact that it is actually having. So they try to push back or try to dig into Australian history to to bring out the narratives about Chinese people who have been active in, I guess, fighting those actions and laws. But they're also trying to tell stories on their own terms. So it's also digging into the archives and trying to figure out who people were, where they came from, what were their lives here. So in some ways, my own research in, in Young at the moment is also um, trying to research the people who either remained in Young after the riots or who came back afterwards. So I'm finding that there are several businesses in the town of Young that have existed over the past sort of 150 odd years, but you only find that out by talking to local people. And there are local Chinese Australians in the region who want to tell you about their histories but they're also mixed race. So they're like me, they're Eurasian. Um, They want to tell you about the experience of what it is to be Eurasian, what it is to have Anglo um, great-grandparents as much as it is about having a Chinese great-grandparent. And so it's a much more complex history that you get directly from people than what you get portrayed by either Australian or, um, I guess, Chinese institutions. And there's an impact there of Chinese film crews or media coming from the PRC to interview people in Young, and they get portrayed as survivors of this terrible massacre or the survivors of these of these terrible riots, but they, they're not asked about their lives. They're not asked about the fact that their market gardening grandfather was contributing to the local hospital fates. They don't get to tell the stories of the fact that their sisters ran a clothing business during the mid-20th century. They don't get to talk about their uncle's band that toured the Riverina. Like these are stories that are not interesting to the PRC media and they they kind of remain in the family. Um, And so I guess I'm trying to pick that up and at least record that for the local museum because that's what I can do as a, as a kind of local historian. But getting it out there into a broader media space is also an issue that I'm trying to work through. Um, but there are other Chinese-Australian historians who are researching um, Chinese in different places. So Juanita Kwok is researching the Chinese in Bathurst. Her, that's what her PhD was on. She's researching the Chinese in regional New South Wales. People like Natalie Fong, who is of Chinese descent, has been looking at her ancestors from Darwin. Um, so there are a number of people who are, doing, who are doing this kind of research. But at the moment, we're all outside of the academy. So we're doing this on our own, 
in between trying to pay for our bills, etc. Well, could I could I use that as as a chance to turn devil's advocate to you, Louise? I mean, given that certainly our current federal government doesn't have a great deal of interest in in funding uh, memorials for Chinese Australian history, I mean, is it maybe not a bad thing that that even some money is coming in, sure to tell a slightly disnified version of Chinese Australian history, but but you know, isn't isn't some money coming in from the PRC not necessarily a completely bad thing? Uh, no, I think it's better if people tell their own stories, and now we've got so many ways that, that can be done and that views can be disseminated with you know the the, the online mode this the social media mode self-publishing there's so many ways you can actually tell these tell your own story and get it out there that you don't really need this heavy hand of the nation state and it doesn't matter whether it's the nation state of australia or the nation state of the people's republic of china it's really important from what karen's you know descriptions of the local stories and the local people it's resting history back away from these big forces that would start using it for their own purposes when people are actually interested in other people and they want to know about that band that travelled around the Riverina and they want to know about the clothing store and it doesn't take a lot of money, it takes a lot of time. I guess one question that I have is, I mean, how, how serious is this? Have we just kind of picked on three random examples or are these three examples uh, evidence of a kind of more coordinated campaign to rewrite Chinese Australian history through the lens of Beijing's century of humiliation. Uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I yes I think there is a much larger story and we've just picked out three virtually random examples of that. The other project which has really uh, got my goat in this area of um, in- influencing the history agenda in Australia of Chinese. Australians. A book project was proposed about four or five years ago, 2016, a overview history of the Chinese in Australia. And I, I, myself and a number of other my colleagues in this field were sent invitations to participate, to write a chapter. And uh, we were sent an outline of the book. And it starts off by saying, chapter one will focus on the pre-1788 communication between China and Australia. I can tell you there's no evidence that ever happened. That's going to be included in it. The section on World War I to World War II talks about case studies of Chinese labour battalions, Chinese seamen and the Chinese youth club in the Pacific War, all of which were communist-associated organisations in Australia. The section on Chinese and Australian politics doesn't mention anything about the political activity we've just been talking about earlier, but it does say... This chapter will discuss Chinese political connections with the motherland and their relations with the Australian Communist Party. And the last chapter is, this chapter will fully examine the roles played by Australian Chinese in the above bilateral relations, their connections and relations with motherland in different periods. Now, I read this and I was just so incensed. I mean, it was just totally manipulating the history around the bilateral relationship around communist agenda, narrow focus on certain topics, leaving out others. And the event that's not mentioned is the Tiananmen massacre and the very large cohort of refugees that came to Australia after 19... or stayed in Australia after 1989. And there's a timeline for the publication of the book. And the final thing, point seven, is to prepare to publish the work in early June 2019, the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square. So... I wrote an open letter to other people I knew who were invited to go to a workshop to discuss this, saying that, oh, I didn't actually tell you, that the project was initially touted as 
it would be funded by Huang Shamo, that he would provide the money for this book. 20 chapters, 20,000 words each chapter, 20 different scholars, scholars from universities in China as well as in Australia. So I said, look, I'm not going to be involved. Even that early on, I knew that Huang Shangmo was, was tricky. Uh, Huang Shangmo was a Chinese businessman who was accused of giving bribes to an Australian politician, right? Yes, correct. Because he gave bribes to Sam Dastiari, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and he's, he's now banned from returning to Australia by the Australian government because he's regarded as a, um, an agent for the Chinese government. And he was the one who was behind this book project. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Louise, how many data points make a trend? How coordinated a campaign do you think this is? Well, I, I'm coming at it from another point of view. I'm more on the, the view that Australia needs to get more active about telling its own stories. You know, we actually need to start owning our own history and stop being dependent upon narratives coming from Hollywood or Beijing or from London. And at the moment, we're subject to all of these kind of influences, if you want, and open to being bought because we are so passive in the face of our own history. So I think it's clear from what um, Paul's been saying that there's a, the, the lines are, you know, the data points are lining up and it's not just chance. I mean, the, the, there's interest, there's real benefit to be had for the CCP in creating and crafting a particular global history of overseas Chinese that, you know, whitewashes the mistakes they've made, amplifies the mistakes other governments have made, creates a sense of racial unity by ignoring all of the political, religious, linguistic, cultural differences of people who happen to walk around in what we would on the surface see as Chinese skin. So if we don't, if we don't step up and write our own history with all its little intricacies and, and subtleties, someone else will fill that gap with their own version of it. Karen, to you, just unpack this a little bit because you were sort of describing how there's all these people doing this great work but they're doing it on the smell of an oily rag uh, and wrapping it up with what we've been seeing in Beijing in the last few weeks about this whole idea of common prosperity, that there are these super rich Chinese billionaires who are now going to be expected to do their patriotic duty. I mean, how do you fight against the kind of glossy history that this business money can buy, not not talking about the Chinese state at all, but that Chinese business can buy all, all around the world? Um, I guess at the local level, you just have to keep talking to people and start educating people on the ground. It's quite evident that there is, um, I guess, that interference. Huang Xiongmo was also involved in a memorial to the Lamming Flat Riots that's actually in Rookwood Cemetery. A fair way from Lambing Flat, but the Australian Chinese Workers Association um, created this memorial after a uh, memorial service at New South Wales Parliament House on the 21st of March 2015. So it's really interesting that Huang Xiaomo was also there at the dedication ceremony. And of, of course, it's more about the victims and it's also referring to... Um, the Chinese miners who were assaulted, injured and perhaps even killed in these tragic events. But it also gets connected up to the celebration of the 1975 Racial Discrimination Act um, because that, of course, is the formal or what is often called the formal end of the white Australia policy and we often see that as um, coinciding with the beginning of multicultural policy. And so it's a way of saying that... Um, the white Australia policy is consigned to history's dustbin 
and that the beginning of multiculturalism and the beginning of re relations with the PRC is this wonderful harmonious relationship that's going to be between the two countries. But of course, that sort of narrative is attractive to governments. That's what actually influences the commemorations at government levels. And you can see that in Young and sort of around that local area um, in terms of the, the Chinese tribute garden, which was developed um, through the 1980s. When the Young Shire Council and the Young Historical Society and also the PRC embassy were in talks about creating this garden as a tribute to the Chinese who contributed to Young and to Australia. But they didn't actually talk to local people. They didn't talk to any of the Chinese descendants in or around Young. And they were around. So I guess what you kind of have to do at that local level is just keep talking to people and start educating people. So start talking to um, the community organisers who want, who are already sympathetic and are interested in recording those histories and start enabling them to understand that there are multiple Chinese languages and start getting them to realise that if you're going to deal with Chinese language texts, you need to go to a professional. You can't just get somebody who speaks Mandarin to translate something for you. It means that places like Langs Creek Cemetery, which is near Borowa, has um, its Chinese um, cemetery monuments recorded in Mandarin. They're not recorded in the original Cantonese or Hokkien languages, and they don't record the traditional characters either. The Chinese cemetery at Harden Marambara was funded by the New South Wales government to restore it, but they used metal plaques that produced Chinese names in, in English lettering, but the original headstone has Chinese characters. It's got the, the traditional characters, and this is not preserved. So we're going to see those monuments disappear, but the metal recreations that are wrong stay. Um, so unless we actually educate people on the ground, I think that's really the only way forward. And um, just to finish off, maybe a quick question for each of you. Now we seem to be heading into this extreme ideological moment at the same time as it's becoming richer and richer and seeking to exert its influence beyond its borders, particularly when it comes to telling Chinese histories overseas. Is it too late to wrest back that kind of narrative war? Do you think the damage has already been done or can that be changed? I think there are always going to be losses. So in, in Young, in some ways, the, the building of the Chinese tribute gardens wiped out any sort of remaining possible traces of Chinese market gardens on that particular site. Sometimes these monuments do destroy things. But I think that you will always have a counter history. You'll always have a counter narrative somewhere. It's just a matter of um, whether we can grasp at those sort of fragments and pull enough of them together to be able to continue keeping those memories alive in some form. But it strikes me as really very sad that the local history that you're talking about has already, in your retelling of it, become a counter-history to Beijing's imposed history. I mean, Louise, do you think it's too late? 
No, I don't think it's too late because history is constantly being written, rewritten, excavated, reconstructed, new artefacts being made out of old artefacts. It's a constant process. And the awareness that there is something unique about the Australian Chinese story internationally is really becoming apparent. There's a number of really good books um, that have come out just in the last five or six years that are really crafting this history. We've got the National Library of Australia's um, recent call to contribute to their database on Australian Chinese stories. You can you can nominate your own story, you can record your own story, you can send your letters. They, they're gathering that very actively and that's our own national uh, institution. We've got a new museum of uh, Chinese Australians being created in Sydney, um, down in Chinatown there with uh, Dr John Yu as, at the head. And if uh, maybe if uh, he's listening to this kind of podcast, he'll also be alert to the fact that you know, we we want that diversity of Chinese stories included, not just one story. Because obviously the PRC's version of history is one version of it. That's It's a legitimate version. But we'd also like all of these other ones to, to come through as well. And that's... So I don't think it's too late. I think it's... Um, but it's, it's hard work. And I think um, we've all got to, you know, put our elbows to the grindstone and make, make sure the history is not lost. And Paul, what about you? Looking forward, what worries you most? I actually don't think rule is lost at all. I think that uh, within our community of scholars and community groups that are interested in Chinese-Australian history, there has been a considerable vigilance around narratives being imposed upon our our stories. Um, There are many organisations that operate at the moment. There's the Chinese Museum in Melbourne that I worked at for 15 years, which is still going strong in Chinatown and Melbourne. There's the Golden Dragon Museum in Bendigo, which commemorates and, and protects and preserves an incredible collection of um, processional and parade and dragon memorabilia from that city's unique history. Uh, there's the Chinese Australian Family History Association Victoria, which is doing wonderful work with recuperating records from the National Archives that can enable people to track their ancestors. There's the Our Chinese Past Project that I'm involved in, which is photographing and translating the temple records of uh, temples that existed in northern New South Wales and New England and recuperating the stories from those records. There's a lot of projects going on and there's also things operating at the academic level as well. And uh, I think we're at a moment where the federal government in particular is keen to be supporting the Chinese communities of Australia as a counterweight to the fact that they look like they're resisting the Chinese government. They don't want to appear to be racist. So they're saying, well, let's... So this Museum of Chinese and Australian in Sydney has been funded $300,000 by the federal government through DFAT, through the National Foundation for Australia-China Relationships. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's great opportunities. Uh, I just think we need to be aware of what's going on and more and more people are becoming aware and uh, this, this podcast is a great opportunity to get those stories out there so people sort of open their eyes to these things. I mean, I could tell you quite a few other stories that I've experienced personally, even going back to the, you know, 2014, 2013, there's that conference eight years ago where we had two scholars from, from China who wanted to do papers about Uyghur emigrates in a conference about overseas Chinese history. So, you know, we've been paying attention to this thing for a long time. And I think more and more people will be aware of these issues. Paul McGregor, Louise Edwards and Karen Schamberger, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you thank much. you for inviting us. 
You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Editing was by Andy Hazel. Our background research was by Wing Kuang. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.